Hi, I'm Simone Halpin, the Executive Director of Naomi's House. And since last December, when we partnered with Serve the World and Chapel Street, we have been hard at work building The Gathering Place, the only day program for victims of sexual exploitation in the area. Here we are. It was in January of 2020 that we felt the Lord was calling us to consider The Gathering Place. We knew that nothing like this existed in our county, so we took the step of faith, we started praying, we started asking God, what would this look like? What do women need? What are the resources that we have that we can put together in order to provide a day program that gives more women the opportunity to find hope and healing? This is a place where we can serve up to 40 women a year, four times the number of women we've been able to serve in residential. And we are thrilled to see women begin to take advantage of this beautiful space and the services that we can provide educationally, vocationally, therapeutically, so that they can begin again. Hi, I'm Amanda Bagnall. I'm the clinical director of day program services here with Naomi's House. When we had the opportunity to expand services at the gathering place to reach more women, <laughs> I got really excited about what that could look like for our community and for the women that we serve. We have a young woman who's traveling all the way from Chicago on public transportation to receive services here at The Gathering Place. Because we are one of the only day program services that provides this type of care to women who've been exploited, she finds it worth her time to come out here three days a week, travel two hours just to meet with our case managers, do the day program, and receive therapeutic services. God knew and he saw what our needs were and he called up the church to meet those needs. And not only did you raise $200,000 to equip us to close on this space, but you went above and beyond. And through that partnership, we were able to cover all the expenses of the renovation. So we're sitting here today in the most beautiful space, welcoming space, and we're starting to fill it already with women who need to hear that there is hope for their future, that there is healing for their trauma, and that together with this community, with the church, with our volunteers, with our staff, we will walk alongside of them and hope for them that their lives can look different and that they can heal from their commercial sexual exploitation. Boy, what a great experience it is to look back at all that God has done last year in the Advent season through Naomi's house and all of your generosity. Once again, thank you, Chapel Street, for stepping up and being generous to the work of God in, in our community and uh, in our broader uh, area and around the world. Uh, and we're excited next week to talk to you about our Advent project for this season. Um, we're, we know God has been so faithful through many of you to provide for the needs of many gospel partners in our community, and we're thrilled to talk to you about the next project, which we've been praying about and will reveal to you next week. So tune in and join us next week for that, won't you? Let's pray now and ask God to speak to us through his word. Father, you're always working and moving in our lives and you're providing for us in small and large ways. We thank you for the work of Naomi's house. We thank you that you allowed us to be part of it. And through our gifts, you multiply those efforts and are impacting the lives of women in desperate need of restoration and hope and healing. And we all are in need of your healing and restoration. So now, Lord, help us as we come to your word, tune our hearts to what you would say to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, you know, I've noticed something uh, about our culture and life in our culture that seating can be a stressful thing. Do you know that? Have you noticed that? 
Like when you're a kid, you know, you, you play the game called shotgun. Maybe, maybe you still play it as an adult. You call shotgun because you want to be in the passenger seat next to the driver. Or if you've ever flown Southwest, you know that seating is a stressful thing. You've got to get your number, your letter and your number and get lined up properly and get on the plane and get the best seat that you can based on your you know, assigned uh, boarding uh, location. Or the school lunchroom. Who are you going to sit by? Who are you going to sit with? Where are you going to sit? Um, if you go to a game, uh, box seats, skybox seats. I, I once went to Wrigley in the skybox with some family and friends, and we had all the food and the spread and sat up there, uh, you know, way above the, the poor peons down below us in the regular seats. It kind of ruined it for me, you know. Or if you sit like in the bleachers or, you know, we, you, there are people that, where you sit says something about your status and your position and your rank, you know. If you go to a wedding reception, where do you sit? Where are you seated? You go and get your little card with your number on it, look around for that table. It says something about, about you and where they rank you, so to speak, where, wherever you sit. And where you sit says something about how, how you connect socially in that particular environment. Even here in church, you know, if you come to church in person, uh, you, I notice where people sit. When I'm speaking to people in, in the live audience, I look and where are they? Where do they sit? They sit the same place every week, uh, or certain seats. Where are the best seats in church? Well, for some, uh, it's way in the back, early exit, fast out. I notice rarely is it right up front in church. <laughs> you know, if you go to a movie theater, you don't want to sit with your head craned back right up front. The truth is we tend to choose our seats based on perceived status, based on our preference, our comfort, what we desire, proximity to exits, whatever the case. And the text we're going to look at in the Gospel of Mark in our series, Following the King, has to do with this idea of the best seats as a metaphor for significance, for importance, for status. Following the King, Jesus is going to redefine the seating chart for us. He's going to redefine what it means to be significant, to have status in his kingdom. Let's look at Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, this text, this passage, this encounter, exchange between James and John and Jesus and the other disciples, like many of the passages we've looked at, is a crucial one for understanding what it means to follow the king. And the request of James and John sounds rather ridiculous on its face. It sounds hopelessly self-centered. John Stott said, this may be the most selfish prayer ever prayed. Lord, do whatever I want is essentially what they say. Think about that. Jesus, do whatever I ask you to do. 
The request itself is problematic for reasons we're going to get into, but their timing is just terrible. Let me read to you what happens in, in, in the passage just before this. It won't be on the screen, but in Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 34, and they're on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed at those who were afraid. Take it. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them he was, what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So Jesus specifically, this is the third time in three chapters that Jesus has predicted specifically his suffering, betrayal, arrest, death, and resurrection. And in each case, the disciples totally miss the point. They totally misunderstand what's going on. He reveals his identity connected to his death three times, and in every time, they get it wrong. In chapter 8, he talks about this, and Peter says, don't talk that way, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. In chapter 9, they're arguing about who the greatest is while he's talking about dying. And here in chapter 10, James and John make this ridiculous request right after he said, I'm going to suffer and be betrayed and die. Notice in, in verse 33, Jesus says, we're going up to Jerusalem. There's a turning point happening here in Mark's gospel. Maybe you're wondering, well, if you've been tracking along with us, where are we in the story of Jesus here? We're, we're a, a few weeks, about a month or less from his death. So Mark chapter 10, there's a turning point happening, and that phrase, we're going to Jerusalem, is key. Jesus has turned, Luke 9 says he set his face toward Jerusalem. He has turned now, and he's marching toward the end, and he knows this, though the disciples do not. They think he's going to Jerusalem to conquer, to rule, to throw out the Romans. He's going there to die, and this is crucial to the misunderstanding that's happening. This takes place weeks from his death. So, a couple observations here about what it means to follow the king. That's the title of our series. What does it mean? Following the king is about submission over status. Submission over status. It was a common discussion among the disciples. It's a debate they had often. You read the gospel accounts, and they frequently discuss who's the greatest. I mean, think about it for a minute. Is they're following Jesus, there are going to be times when Jesus is off praying or, or doing something, and they're talking amongst themselves. And it only makes sense they'd be thinking about, well, what's it going to be like when he finally takes the throne? What's it going to be like when he kicks out the Romans? Where will we be? What cabinet positions will we have? What are you going to do, Peter? What are you going to do, James? What am I going to do? So it makes sense that they're having this debate. But James and John just are bold enough to ask. They knew he was the Messiah, but to them, Messiah meant king. And in the first century, there were no constitutional monarchs or elected presidents Kings ruled with absolute authority. So naturally they're thinking when he becomes king and takes the throne, he's going to have all authority and we've given everything to follow him. It's got to mean something good for us. Maybe James and John thought they had a good shot. You know, they, 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 those two along with Peter were at the Mount of Transfiguration. James and John along with Peter were inside the room when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. They were, to, to put it in a phrase, the inner circle of Jesus. So maybe they thought, we've got the inside track here. Maybe they thought, you know, he's going to become king. Let's get a request in first. Maybe he's going to issue these positions on a first-come, first-served basis. So let's get our request in first. Somebody's got to sit in his right and his left, so why not us, they're thinking, perhaps. Let's look at verses 35 through 38. 
And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me? This is crucial here. Jesus says to them, What do you want me to do for you? He doesn't, he doesn't say, How dare you ask something like that? He doesn't say, What are you talking about? How, how ridiculous, how arrogant, how selfish. He says, What is it you want? They said, grant to us to sit, one at your right hand, one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. We'll get to that in just a minute. The way they ask is really kind of childish if you think about it. I remember when my son Benjamin, their youngest, was young, he would ask, Dad, do you promise? Dad, do you promise? Do you promise? And I would say, promise what? And he wouldn't tell me what he wanted before he was trying to get me to promise. It's, in a way, they're coming to Jesus going, do whatever we say. And you know, like, can you agree to that? Then we'll tell you what it is. And Jesus says, what is it you want? He's so gracious with them. And they ask their question. He simply says, what do you want? What if Jesus asked you that question? What if Jesus turned to you and said, what is it you want me to do for you? How would you answer him? What is it you want Jesus to do for you? Their request reveals something about their ambition, about the condition of their hearts, and about their expectations of Jesus. And I think our requests also reveal something about our expectations of Jesus. They expected Jesus to be king, and he is. They did not expect a cross. St. Augustine said, why seek the kingdom if you do not seek the way into it? The way into the kingdom is through the cross, through the suffering of Jesus. You know, it's often we read through these stories, and I've found myself looking at the disciples going, how dense are these guys? I mean, how many times does Jesus have to say this? They're just not getting it. But then I realized, you know, we all have a remarkable capacity to hear what we want to hear and to not hear what God is actually saying to us. Jesus had talked repeatedly about his kingdom. He never once talked about a military, political, or earthly kingdom. But that's what they heard. That's what they wanted to hear. What is it we want to hear when we come to Jesus? What expectations do we bring to him? What are are our secret ambitions? What do we hope Jesus will do for us on our terms? Ambition itself is not necessarily sinful or wrong. But it's the location, the object of our ambition, that's the critical issue. Kingdom ambition is about submission over status. Kingdom ambition is not about my position and recognition. It's about surrender to the king. Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. (laughs) And that's going to be true in several ways, as we'll see. And you know, it's still true today, if you think about it. I I, I think about my own life. I've asked God for things that I had no business asking for. I really did not even know what I was asking at the time. C.S. Lewis said, if God had granted all of the silly prayers I've made in my life, where should I be now? I shudder to think. Isn't that true? If God had said yes to all my ridiculous requests, where would I be now? We plead for things which we really cannot comprehend from our finite perspective. We get frustrated or disillusioned with God because we don't get the yes we think we deserve or want on our terms. Notice what Jesus says next. He asks a question, can you drink the cup that I drink? 
or be baptized with my baptism. What's he talking about there? Well, in, in the Old Testament and the New, the cup is a metaphor uh, for the blessing of God and more often the wrath, judgment, or suffering that comes from sometimes from God or from our lives. So, for example, Jeremiah 49 is the cup of judgment poured out on the nation of Israel for their rebellion. Psalm 23, the psalmist says, My cup overflows with blessing and joy from my shepherd. Isaiah 51 is the cup of wrath of God's judgment on the pagan nations. And in Matthew 26, Jesus prays, Lord, let this cup pass from me, referring to the cross, which is coming. So here, to drink the cup means, in a sense, to take what's coming. Well, what's coming for Jesus? What is it that's coming? We just talked about it. He's a few weeks from the cross, and he knows this. So in this context, in Mark chapter 10, the context is clearly suffering. That's what's coming. And baptism doesn't mean baptism in the water. He was already baptized in the Jordan, and there's a baptism of repentance and of faith. He's not talking about water baptism. It's a, it's a euphemism, a metaphor for full immersion in something, meaning I'm fully immersed in the life that God has called me to. And Jesus is saying, you want to be immersed in the kingdom life? It's going to mean submission and sacrifice and a measure of suffering. When Jesus asked the question, can you drink this cup and can you be baptized? The presumed answer is no. No, you can't. Because only he will go to the cross as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. The next point I want to highlight here is following Jesus is about sacrifice over security. Submission over status and sacrifice over security. They're asking for positions of status and security in the kingdom, and Jesus is showing them that his kingdom operates on an entirely different set of principles. Look at verses 39 and 40. And they said to him, we are able. This is ridiculous. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not, of my, not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. How crazy. Jesus says, can you drink the cup of suffering, the cross, and, and, and sacrifice that I'm going to drink? Now, technically, no, they would not drink that. Only Jesus would. But... Interestingly, in their crazy answer, which they don't, they don't understand what they're asking, and they don't understand how they're answering, but ironically, it's an accurate answer. Jesus says, you will suffer for Christ. Historically, James will be the first of the disciples, the apostles, to be martyred. In Acts chapter 12, we know that he is beheaded by King Herod Agrippa, the first to die. And of the 12, all but one would die violently. And that one is John, the last of the disciples to die. He will be exiled for most of his adult life on the island of Patmos and then will die. They wanted to be on his right and left. They're going to be the first and last to die. That's what Jesus means when he says, actually, you will drink this cup in your own way and be, and be fully immersed in this life, though you have no idea what I'm talking about now. I wonder if Jesus had explained all this in detail to them if they would have run screaming from the room. <laughs> they would have said, never mind, forget it, we don't want in. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And you know, in thinking about it, I don't know that the call of following the king would make a very good uh, commercial or want advertisement. Think about it. Wanted, individuals willing to die to self, work long hours, little sleep, no pay. Sacrifice and service to others is required. Expect opposition and ridicule by the general public. Persecution and death, likely. 
required to submit and to trust management in all circumstances, even when you don't understand it. <laughs> Who's in? Who wants in, right? That's the call. How often do I, do you, do, do we in the church today want to soften this, want to take away the hard edges of what it means to follow the king and make it just, you know, Jesus is your, is your buddy, he's your life coach, he's going to help you out, he's going to come alongside and, and make your life a little better than it is? That's not what's happening here. That's not the call. In verse 40, Jesus says, these are not mine to grant, they're already prepared. This doesn't mean that he doesn't know or doesn't have the authority. What it means is he's saying, you're asking a question which is not in line with my kingdom purposes. The kingdom you say you want to be part of, you're, not, you're asking for something that is not, is not right for yours to ask or mine to give. It's already been prepared. Trust the one who's prepared it. Let's look at the third point now. Following the king is about service over self. Following the king is about service over self. Now, I think about these three things, and there are three ways of saying the same thing, but they're subtly different if you think about it. Let's look at this for just a minute. We have submission over status, sacrifice over security, and service over self. Just for a second, which side, which column better describes the posture of your heart? I'll be honest, even as I was writing this down in my sermon notes, and I wrote those three words, submission, sacrifice, and service, I thought, is that true of me? called to lead a church? Is that, is that the posture of my heart? Or is it more often true of me that I'm about status, security, and self? And what about you? It's, 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 a, it's a worthwhile endeavor to maybe write those six words, three columns, three, three words on each column, two columns, sit down and just pray about that. Think about that. Evaluate your own heart on those terms. Look, let's look at verses 41 to 44 of Mark chapter 10. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones, that's an interesting phrase, exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. Now, why were the other ten disciples so indignant at James and John? Why were they angry? Why were they frustrated and irritated with those guys? Do you think it was because they, they understood the kingdom and they realized, these guys are betraying the very principles of the kingdom. How dare they ask for something so selfish? We're supposed to be self-sacrificing servants of the king. What's wrong with those two? You think that's the case? I don't think so. I think, remember, this is a conversation they had frequently amongst themselves. I think they're mad because those guys asked first. Because they got to Jesus ahead of them. I think it's because they, they beat them to it. They're mad because those guys called shotgun and they didn't get to. And they're wondering if it's going to cost them to have lesser seats. They also struggle with the same misunderstanding of the kingdom. Which is why Jesus calls them to him. I don't know, I don't know why, but I just love that phrase. 
Think about what's happening here. James and John make this ridiculous, self-centered request. Jesus is so patient. What do you want? We want to sit your right and your left. He's like, actually, you're going to die. And the other ten are mad at them because they want positions of power. And Jesus goes, boys, boys, come here. Let's talk. I've got some things to explain to you about how my kingdom actually works. You're still not getting it. He's so gracious and so patient as their teacher. And he is also that way with us when we misunderstand, when we get selfish and want our way. He calls them to him to teach them. The disciples really are just like us, aren't they? They doubt, they're confused, they misunderstand, they compete with each other, they're worried about themselves, jockeying for position, but they're still his disciples. Maybe you feel like, you know, I'm trying to follow Jesus, but I get it wrong, I, I'm, I'm worried, I'm fearful, I, I get stressed out, I, I, I'm selfish. You know what, you still belong to him. All the king has ever had to work with is imperfect, broken people. That's, but he's in the business of calling broken, messed up, fearful, selfish people to become over time, by his grace, more and more like the king. And he calls them to him and he says, let's talk. Now, they're all failing to grasp the true purpose and nature of his mission, so he draws this comparison between greatness and authority in the world and greatness and authority in the kingdom. This is the lesson he's going to give them. And he says essentially, you know what it's like out there. You know how the the Romans act. You know how the Herodian kings act. You know how kings and rulers and great people in the culture at large, no matter what civilization, act. How they've always acted. How they lord it over them. This phrase, the great ones, meaning people of power. That's what the phrase means. You know how people of power behave in the world. They abuse their power. They use it to promote themselves. They use it to exploit others. They use it to hold people down so they could be elevated. You know that's how it always works. And isn't it, it's not different today. What's, whatever, the, whatever side of the political aisle you find yourself on, one of the things we're always frustrated with, regardless of our ideology, is that the elected people in power often use that power to serve themselves and stay in power, not to serve the people who put them there. We, we see it in our culture, in our country. Historically, it's almost always been true. And when you find an exception, it stands out as as odd and strange. And Jesus says, I want to talk to you about how it's supposed to be in the kingdom. And he he does this comparison. Whoever would be great among you. Whoever would be great among you. You know, we, we have debates in our culture, don't we, about who's greatest. We say these sorts of things. The greatest of all time. Who's the greatest? We, we debate, is it, uh, is it his heiress, Michael Jordan, or King James, LeBron? And that's, by the way, that's an easy one. In case you're confused about this, it's Michael Jordan. It's not even close. Or who's the greatest NFL football team of all times? If you're wondering about that, that's also easy. The 1985 Chicago Bears. I can go down the list and help you with these things. But in God's, in God's kingdom, what does greatness look like? Is it fame and power and uh, wealth and significance and influence and followers? Not at all. None of that. He redefines the whole concept. Remember redefining the seating chart? You know what it's like out there. The word for great ones is the word megaloi in Greek. That's where we get the root for our megalomaniac uh, in English. You know how leaders abuse their authority. And then there's this phrase, this powerful phrase which should pierce us. It shall not be so among you. You're to be different My kingdom does not operate that way. He's talking to these 12 men who will be the founders of this movement 
to spread the gospel and to establish the church. And he's saying to them, it cannot be like this with you. This is not how my kingdom operates. It's not supposed to be this way in the kingdom of God, in the church. But if we're honest, sometimes it has been. Historically, even in present day, sometimes not just out there, but inside the family of God, we've gotten it wrong. We've operated on the world's principles of power and authority. I've been reading this book called Bullies and Saints by Australian historian and theologian John Dixon. Let me read to you this excerpt. He uses the analogy, he said he learned to play the cello poorly, and he tried to play Johann Sebastian Bach's cello suites, which is this magnificent piece, and he, he butchered it. And here's what he writes. He says, disregarding Christianity on the basis of the poor performance of the church is a bit like dismissing Johann Sebastian Bach after hearing me attempt cello suites. We know how to distinguish in music between composition and performance. I've often thought about this when it comes to Jesus Christ and the history of the church. Jesus wrote a beautiful composition. Christians have not always performed it very well. Sometimes they have been badly out of tune. Occasionally they have played something entirely different. And when people turn to contemplate the original, very often Christ's original vision makes Christians look bad. I've appreciated his honesty there. So we must reject the abuses of leadership and authority out in the world, and we must also repent of the abuses of authority inside the kingdom of God. Matter of fact, if I could read one more excerpt from this book I came across in a later chapter. Uh, Ignatius of Antioch, not of Loyola, which is much later, but one of the early church fathers, uh, lived in about 100 A.D., he, wrote a, he was arrested in Antioch, taken to Rome, where he was executed for his faith. And on the way, his captors allowed him to write letters. So he wrote a number of letters, seven of them have survived, to send them to different churches to encourage them, knowing he's going to his death. Here's an excerpt from his letter to the church at Ephesus to encourage them in about 100, 105 AD. Pray continually for the rest of mankind that they may find God, for there is yet hope for their repentance. Therefore, allow them to be instructed by you, at least by your deeds, if not your words. In response to their anger, be gentle. In response to their boasts, be humble. In response to their slander, offer prayers. In response to their errors, be steadfast in the faith. In response to their cruelty, be kind and civilized. Do not be eager to imitate them or their way of authority. Let us show by our forbearance that we are their brothers and sisters, and let us be eager to be imitators of our Lord. It's amazing. He writes that letter on his way to his death about how we are to respond to the very people who are condemning him and executing him. It's a different kind of kingdom. It's a different kind of leadership. Greatness in the eyes of God is defined on the basis of servanthood is the point. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. You want to be great? Maybe you don't think of yourself as great, but most of us aren't trying to be average. My goal, life and goal is to be mediocre, right? What is greatness in God's eyes? Well, let me just give you a couple of questions to ask yourself. Do you, do you look for ways, look for ways or opportunities to serve other people? Do you get excited about other people's success and celebrate that? How much time or energy do you spend thinking about how to serve others 
or encourage someone else? Do you celebrate the success of others? Do you get excited when there's an opportunity to, to bless someone else? I had a friend who said to me, you know, that he'd been in church all his life and he'd been around the Christian uh, worldview and he considered himself a Christian, but the turning point of real surrender and submission to Jesus happened when he took his family on a missions trip to South America. He said it was there that God broke through and he redefined things for him. Now, service is more than a trip once upon a time, but that's the place where he understood for the first time what the kingdom is really about. But here's the last point. Following the king is possible only because of the king's ransom. All of this would be well and good, but we'd be missing the power and the whole point if we didn't look at the very last verse, Mark 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In a single sentence, Jesus just hammers it home. He, he, he says, my life, my very life, Jesus is saying to, remember, he's with his, his disciples now, guys, come here, let me explain something to you. Here's what greatness is. And his, the example and the authority is in his own life. Notice he doesn't say, serve others as I have served others. Like, do what I do. I mean, that's part of it. What he's actually saying is, serve others as I have served you. How, how has Jesus served us? Ultimately. How has Jesus Christ served you? If you belong to him today, you know. The ultimate act of service is the cross. He died for you. He gave his life as a ransom for you. The word ransom in Greek is the word lutron. It means freedom price. Specifically, most often in ancient literature, used to refer to the payment required to liberate a slave from captivity. That's, that's the central point of the gospel. We are captives. We are slaves to sin. And we have been liberated because the price has been paid. So Jesus is not just saying, hey, try to measure up to my amazing standard. He's saying, I, I have done this for you and given you the power, liberated you from your selfishness. That, that's what sin is. It's, sin is a mind and heart turned in on itself. And the ransom has been paid that we be set free from that. That's the power the authority by which we can live this way. And, and just, just to make this clear, because it's so important we get this, I want to just walk through a few texts from the Old and New Testament that give us a picture of what the ransom really means. Psalm 49, verses 7 and 8, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. suffice. So you can't ransom yourself or someone else. It's, you can't afford it. It's beyond your, the possibility of you to pay. Jeremiah 31, 11, for the Lord has ransomed Jacob, meaning his people, Israel, and has redeemed him from the hands too strong for him. Jacob, by the way, gets his name changed to Israel. It's a way of referring to God's people. So nobody can ransom his life, but God has done it. And then if we move on to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. That's the price, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So put these in perspective. Nobody can ransom themselves, but God has done it. How has he done it? He's done it through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He's our ransom. 
He's our payment. First Timothy chapter two, verses five through six. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and, the, and, and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So again, you can't ransom yourself. God has done it through the blood of Jesus and he's your only hope, your mediator, because he gave himself for you. And if you wonder where this is all headed, it shows up in the very last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Remember what James and John wanted? Seats of power. Reign with the king. They're going to, but it's not the way they anticipated. You're going to. I'm going to. We're going to. But it's through the suffering and the blood which ransoms us and sets us free. I want to close by reading to you this passage from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a pastor in London, England, of the previous generation who, well, a couple of generations ago now, but who writes this in a book called The Quiet Heart. Consider finally what it meant for him to do this for us, to ransom us. I go, he says. Where's he going? He's going to the Garden of Gethsemane to sweat drops of blood. Where is he going? He's going to be arrested, to be tried in court, to be mocked and jeered and laughed at. He's going to be spit upon and have his body scourged. He's going to have a crown of thorns placed upon his head. They will take him and drive cruel nails into his hands and feet. That is where he's going. He's going to endure the mockery and the spitting and the jeering and the nails and the mob. He's going to die. He who is the eternal Son of God, through whom the world was made, and by whom all things consist, he is going deliberately to all of that, because that is the only way whereby the door and the gate of heaven can be opened for us. Beloved friend, have you realized that the Lord Jesus Christ has done all that for you? If you see it, if you believe it, you will agree with the Apostle Paul, I am not my own. I am bought with a price. Therefore, give yourself wholly to him. Let's pray. Father God, it's, we can scarcely get our minds around this. You have purchased us by your blood. Set us free from ourselves, from our sinfulness, from the condemnation we deserve. That is the only way that we can step into your kingdom and live like you, Jesus, our King. Forgive us for our selfishness, for our concern with status and security. Help us by your spirit and because of your grace to be people who are fully submitted to you, who are willing to sacrifice our lives and live lives of service to others and ultimately for you, our King. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, church, if you're anything like me, you might, feel, might be feeling like there's more for you in that sermon than what you could get in the first pass. So I'd encourage you, go back and listen to it again. Go back and, and reflect on some of the things that Jeff was talking about, about what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to live in Jesus' kingdom. And if you're feeling like those are lofty thoughts that you can't quite obtain, of course, the disciples were struggling with that too. We need Jesus in the process of understanding how to follow him. Let's be encouraged that, uh, that we have a savior who's with us, that wants to lead us, that doesn't expect us to understand it all right away. He's patient with us, just like he was with his disciples. 
So give this uh, sermon another listen, and if, you've, if you please like it and share it with anybody that might be on your heart right now. And as we go from here, let's uh, be people that, who are, that value submission, sacrifice, and service. Bless you, church. Have a great week. Great is the Lord God Almighty, worthy of honor and praise. I stand in awe of His glory. I stand in need of His grace. Amen.